starting off in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is in the area of the Decapolis, which is a um, was like a major Roman center just east of the Galilee. And Decapolis means ten cities. And so these were ten Roman cities that were a Gentile-dominated kind of an area. And Jesus is going to do, in this area, we're going to read about in a moment, the second miracle where he multiplied small amounts of food to feed a large group of people. This is called the feeding of the 4,000, which is a feeding of 4,000 men plus women and children, Matthew tells us. And a lot of skeptics try to say, well, this is really just the same story, you know, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, basically the same story, but the gospel writers repeated it just to kind of add credibility to it. Well, uh, that's ridiculous for a lot of reasons, not the least of which there's about seven or eight differences that just stand out between the two stories. The feeding of the 5,000, of course, was 5,000 men plus women and children. That took place in the Galilee area near Bethsaida, which was a Jewish area. This takes place in the area of the Decapolis, which was a Gentile area. And one was in the spring, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. The other one took place... Uh, near the end of the summer. Uh, there's just a lot of, of differences that uh, come out of the text that is obvious to us that this is a separate account. In fact, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record, which tells us the Holy Spirit felt it was pretty important. The feeding of the 4,000 is only recorded by Matthew and Mark, but still very important. Now, well, let's just read it and we'll kind of pick out some things. In those days, the multitude being very great, and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. So he was in the area of the Decapolis. And remember, this was the area that he had come to earlier when he, when he cast the demons out of those two guys who lived in the tombs. The one guy had the legion in him, so many demons, they called themselves legion. And after he cast the demons out of this guy they went into a herd of swine and the swine ran down the hill and were drowned in the sea of galilee and then the townspeople came out and said uh, we can't deal with this kind of thing here please leave and the demon possessed guy who was now in his right mind and was set free from this kind of bondage wanted to go with jesus he wanted to become one of his disciples but jesus sent him back into his hometown and said look you need to go tell your family, your friends, what great things God has done for you. Well, it could be that this was this guy's ministry. I mean, when Jesus comes back into the area of the Decapolis now, 4,000 men plus women and children, probably 15,000 or so people were out there listening to him teach. No longer are they telling him, please leave. They're, they want him there. And it could be this guy had a very effective ministry as the Lord sent him back to his friends and his family. But anyways, here they are. They've been listening to the Lord teach now for three days. And all that time, they, they probably brought a sack lunch when they first got there. But now three days has gone by. Their food is long gone. They've been probably now without food for a couple, at least two days. And Jesus, who obviously is not only concerned with our spiritual well-being, that's, of course, the priority. But all throughout the gospel, it's obvious he's also concerned for our physical well-being. And he, on a very practical level, was concerned for these people. He said, they've been here three days. They have had nothing to eat. And if I send them away now back to their houses without giving them something to eat, they could faint along the way. Verse 4, then his disciples answered him, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Now that had to be kind of a disappointing statement to hear. I mean, these guys had already seen Jesus feed 5,000 people. Why would they still come across with this kind of a, well, how are we going to feed them out here, Lord? It's like, guys, wake up. Is anybody home? It's like, you know, we just we just fed 5,000 men not too long ago. Why do you ask such a question? But he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. So apparently the disciples had brought some food along. And he had commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them, the people. And they set them before the multitude. And they had a few small fish, 
And having blessed them, these few small fish again were the same kind spoken of earlier in the feeding of the 5,000. These were small pickle variety that were ready to eat. You might think of like sardines or something, okay? Uh, and so it wasn't, you know, big raw fish people were carrying around. These were ready to eat. And so the Lord blessed them and set them, gave them also to them, and, and they... Um, and they distributed them. Verse 8 says, So they ate and were filled. The Greek says glutted. These folks ate until they were stuffed. They took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples, and he came to the region of Dalmanutha, which is uh, also the area of Magdala, which is where Mary Magdalene was from so he go he crosses now from the east side of the Sea of Galilee over again into the Galilee area okay but here's some things we need to, to see here you say well the Holy Spirit already recorded a very similar miracle what's the point okay we realize Jesus did many miracles that are not recorded because John said to end his gospel Many other things did Jesus do that I couldn't even begin to write about because if I did, it would probably take all the books in the world to contain, which was probably hyperbole. But the point he was making was that Jesus did so many things that never made it into the Gospels. So why did the Holy Spirit take the time to record a second feeding of several thousand when we already have a very detailed description of the first feeding of the, of, of the 5,000? Well, I think because the Lord was targeting two different groups of people first of all the feeding of the 5,000 took place in an area that was predominantly Jewish so there were predominantly Jews there to be the recipients of this miracle this took place in Gentile territory and even the Greek word for baskets is different remember how after the feeding of the 5,000 they took up 12 baskets full of leftovers and here they took up seven baskets full of leftovers the Greek words are different the first Greek word that's used of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 12 baskets were little hand baskets that were common to the Jews. The Jews would use these small hand baskets and they would put sometimes fruit in or their lunches in. It was a small kind of a hand thing that they would carry around. And it was a common basket used by the Jews. Well, here, when they took up these seven large baskets, this is a Greek word that really you could translate hampers. In fact, it was a basket large enough to hold a man because it was the same Greek word used of Paul the Apostle in Acts chapter 9 verse 25 when he went to Damascus after he got converted and started preaching and the disciples were fearful of his life because now they were beginning to turn on Paul so they at night lowered him over the wall in a basket. Same Greek word. See, these were large baskets that were used to carry uh, uh, goods to market. It was a, it was, and it was a basket used primarily by the Gentiles. And I really think the point the Holy Spirit is trying to make here is that Jesus Christ is the bread of life both for Jew and Gentile. That the, the multiplying of the food, in a, yes, it satisfied a physical, practical need. Don't get me wrong. But the spiritual lesson the Holy Spirit was trying to teach behind these practical miracles was that the Lord is concerned about Jew and Gentile and is the bread of life for both, see? And, and that all that come to Him, He'll never turn away. And you can eat of Him as much as you want because they ate until they were glutted. And the Bible says, even in the Old Testament, when the manna, the bread from heaven, fell from God, it says they could eat as much as they wanted. They could gather as much as they wanted for themselves. And that's how it is with the bread of life, Jesus Christ. You can have as much of him as you want. I mean, he'll never say, hey, that's enough now. I have no more time to give you. I've got other things to do. You know, I've got to run the universe and things. I'm, I'm, I'm quite busy today. But as much time as you want to spend with him, feeding on him and his word, that's as much time as he will set aside for you because he's always there. Unfortunately, as little as you want, well, that's okay too. And um, some eat very little of the bread of life. No wonder they're so weak in their walks. So I believe two different groups were being targeted, but I think it's kind of significant here as we kind of elaborated on the miracle of the 5,000, how that Jesus took a very small amount of food, a little boy's sack lunch, five small barley crackers, and two small pickled fish, 
and he multiplied them into a great feast to feed 20,000 people. And we said at that time, well, what do I have to give God? You know, we say, well, gee, Lord, I don't know what I have to offer to you. I don't, I don't have any talents, really. I don't have any real abilities. Uh, what can you possibly do with my life? A lot. Because a little goes a long way in the hands of the Lord when we give it to him freely. We give our lives freely to him to use. And we allow him to bless us by breaking us, which is what he did. He blessed the food, broke it, and then distributed it. And you know what? This little guy didn't have much, but what he did have, he offered to the Lord freely, and God used it in quite a spectacular way. Well, the same is true here, you know. Jesus, the disciples said to him, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Or in other words, this is the wilderness. Where are these people going to get food to eat? And what did Jesus basically say to them? He said, how many loaves do you have? But he basically said to them, if I could paraphrase it, what do you have in your hand? You know, what do you have at hand? Well, all I got is this, Lord. Fine. Give it to me, and I'll multiply it. One of the minor prophets, I believe it was Amos, said there is coming a time when there is going to be a famine in the land, but not a famine for food, but a famine from hearing the word of God. And I really think in a spiritual way, we could apply this, that verse to this. Because right now, we are living in a spiritual wilderness. America, once founded upon the Word of God and the principles of God, has moved far away from God. In fact, maybe you caught this just the other night that they have now in Illinois abolished Good Friday as a holiday for the kids because a Jewish group brought suit saying, hey, by you giving the children Good Friday off, it says that Christianity is more important than Judaism or any other religion, and we don't buy that. We're upset about that. And so the Illinois Supreme Court has overturned or has abolished now Good Friday as a legal school holiday for the children of the state of Illinois. We are moving farther and farther away from our roots. And when we separate or sever ourselves from our roots, the fruit is withered and died, and America is a wilderness. And you know, you might say, well, how can these people eat in such a wilderness? Where are they going to get the bread of life? And God is saying to every one of us, what do you have in your hand? What are you going to do? What Are you going to give to me whatever little talents and abilities you have and let me use you? People are dying. It's a famine, but not for food, but a famine from hearing the word of God. And you know what? Maybe we don't have a lot, but what little bit we do have, we can we can share. I mean, you don't have to be a theologian to share with a neighbor about the love of Christ, to get out the Bible and have a little Bible. Oh, but me, a Bible study? Sure. You, every one of us should be able to share our faith. Every one of us should be able to, to lead a, a, an unbeliever through some scriptures and explain what the bread of life is all about. And if you can't do that, something's wrong. Then you need to really get more serious about your own study time and your own ability to share your faith. Oh, but I'm not a gifted speaker. You don't have to be. Whatever little bit you have, the Lord will use. And so there is a famine. There is a wilderness that we see in our land. And it's people are starving and they need spiritual food. And verse 11 says, And the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Now, when you read that, you think, well, what in the world were they looking for? First of all, here they come to Jesus Christ. He's well into the second half of his public ministry. Now, he is going to be very shortly setting his face toward Jerusalem because the cross is already beginning to loom in the, over the horizon. I mean, we're coming now down to the home stretch of his ministry. So by this time, he had already turned water to wine. He had already healed many people of various diseases. He had cast out numerous demons from people. He had caused the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the dumb to speak, and the blind to see. He had calmed the wind and the waves with just a word. He had walked on the water. He had raised the dead. I mean, what in the world were they looking for? That they still weren't convinced and that they would come to him and say, well, show us a sign and we'll believe. The idea was that no sign that Jesus could have ever done 
would have caused them to believe because they were not willing to believe. And the thing about it is, so often we think, well, you know what? A miracle is a powerful evidence to the existence of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. If we could just get a bunch of people here and do some miracle, if God could just pull off a miracle, certainly people would be forced to believe. But were they forced to believe when Jesus did miracle after miracle? No, not at all. Because the bottom line is, a miracle will not force a person to believe who doesn't want to believe, but it will bring a person to faith or strengthen faith where there is a willingness to believe. Voltaire, the famous French atheist, who was so bitter and hateful towards Christianity that he said, even if a miracle was done right here in the open marketplace, witnessed by 1,000 sober people, I would mistrust my senses rather than admit a miracle took place. There you have it. Some people are not going to believe, I don't care what you do, I don't care what God does, what miracle happens, they have just purpose in their heart, I am not going to believe, and that's all there is to it. It's willful, hard-hearted unbelief. It's not sincere doubt. I want to believe, but I have my doubts. God can deal with that. That's not a problem. It's where a person says, I don't care. I'm not going to believe. I don't care what God does. I don't care if you do a miracle right here in front of me. I'm not going to believe because I choose not to believe. Interestingly also, Voltaire made the statement, a hundred years from my death, Christianity will be eradicated from Europe and there will not be one Bible left in all of Europe. And you know what? Don't tell me God hasn't got a sense of humor. Almost a hundred years to the day, the European Bible Society bought his own house and made it their headquarters and used his own printing press, which he used to use to print his atheist literature. They used his own printing press to run off Bibles to distribute throughout all of Europe as it is to this very day. A lot of infidels have come and gone and attack the Word of God, they are gone, the Bible still stands. But where there is a determination not to believe, nobody will believe, nobody will see the truth. But where there is a willingness to see, to believe the truth, well, that person is going to see no matter what. I also heard of a story of a French woman who was born, who was, uh, lived 50 years ago, who was born blind. And one day when she was a little older, somebody gave her a copy of the Gospel of Mark in Braille. And she began to read it, and as she read it, she fell in love with Jesus, received him as her Savior, and read that gospel every day. She loved it. It was her joy. She read it constantly. But after a while, calluses began to develop on her fingertips, which caused her to lose sensitivity. So she took a knife, and she began to cut off the calluses from her fingers so that she could read the gospel of Mark. And sometimes with bloody fingertips, she would read the gospel. And this went on for a while until she did permanent nerve damage to the nerve endings in her fingertips, and she lost sensitivity permanently in her fingers. Well, she was heartbroken, and she was devastated. And so she took the gospel of Mark and brought it to her lips to kiss it goodbye, literally, because she knew she could read it no more. When she realized as she kissed it that her lips were more sensitive than her fingers ever were, and she began to read the gospel with her lips and went on to become a tremendous Bible teacher. It just goes to show you that when somebody wants to see, when they want to know the truth, they're going to know the truth no matter what obstacle stands in their way because God is going to give them the truth and they're going to receive it. When somebody wants to know what God has said, no obstacle is going to keep them from knowing God's word or knowing God's will or knowing the truth. But if you are hard-hearted and willfully stubborn of the truth and nothing God ever could do will force you to believe. Jesus said of the Pharisees of this, they are willfully ignorant. And there's a lot of people today who are simply willfully ignorant. They choose not to believe. Now it says here that the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking a sign, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him, but he sighed deeply in his spirit. That was a sigh of, of sadness, really, uh, because of their unbelief. He loved the Pharisees. He wanted to see them saved. But miracle after miracle failed to bring them to him. And he was just saddened by their hardness of heart that after all he had done and all he had taught, they were still looking for some sign, which 
was ridiculous. It was just hypocrisy. What else could he have possibly have done? And so he sighed because of their unbelief. And I'm convinced the Lord is still sighing over his people's unbelief at times. Remember how that after he was crucified in the first uh, Sunday evening that he rose from the dead, the Easter Sunday evening when the disciples were all gathered in the upper room, but Thomas wasn't there. And the Lord came and appeared to them, walking right through the wall, and said, Peace be to you. And, you know, he told them to, you know, he, he kind of, in a way, commissioned them and said, As the Father has sent me, so send I you, and so on. Well, when the Lord then left and Thomas finally arrived, they told him what had happened, that Jesus had come and visited them. You know, he had appeared to them. And Thomas said, I won't believe, not until I can put my finger in the nail prints in his hand and feet, and not until I can thrust my hand into the spear wound in his side, I'm not going to believe unless I see. Well, a week later, when they were all gathered again in the upper room, and this time Thomas was there, Jesus appeared again. The first thing he said was, Thomas, come here, son. Put your finger into my nail prints and put your hand into my side. And don't be unbelieving, but be believing. And Thomas fell on his knees and said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, You believe because you see. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. And that's a very important thing, you know. In the Christian life, the old adage, seeing is believing, isn't the way it is. Really, the Christian adage should be, believing is seeing. Because when we believe, then God reveals himself. So often, if we say, I'm not going to believe unless I see, the Lord doesn't stoop to go ahead and do tricks to convince us because His Word should be enough to convince us to have faith and believe in Him. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 4:48, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But He went on to say in the end of Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 17, He said, And these signs will follow those who believe. See, in my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues and take up serpents and so on and so forth. A spirit-filled child of God is one that signs and wonders follow. But really as Christians, we shouldn't be following signs and wonders. They really should be following after us because we believe. And when we believe, then God honors that faith by working in our lives in some powerful and oftentimes dramatic ways. Now, a parallel passage is here in, in Matthew chapter 16 because Matthew gives us a little more as to what Jesus said. Now, this is the same exact incident. He's just fed the 4,000. He comes back over the Sea of Galilee into the area of uh, the Galilee to Magdala. And then chapter 16, verse 1 says, And the Pharisees and Sadducees, which, by the way, were enemies, but they were joined together by their mutual hatred of Jesus, and so the Pharisees and Sadducees came and, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now, this last statement, except the sign of the prophet Jonah, refers back to something he had said to them earlier and just kind of repeated again. But that was spoken in Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, this was a question they had asked him four times throughout the Gospels. Okay, so they often came to him and say, Look, show us a sign and we'll believe. And Mark tells us they said, Show us a sign from heaven and we'll believe. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jesus Christ, first of all, does us a great favor in that he talks about Jonah as being a literal story, because a lot of liberal 
theologians and Bible teachers want to tell us the whole story of Jonah was an allegory. It really wasn't true. It didn't really happen that way. It was just kind of a fictional story to get across a, a spiritual truth. Well, Jesus didn't feel that way. He thought it was real, and that's good enough for me. But he says, look, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so I'm going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, that's the sign I'm going to give to you. Or in other words, I'm not going to do for you any more signs except one, and that will be the sign of the resurrection. And there's a lot, if you read the book of Jonah, and I personally believe Jonah died in the belly of that great fish. I think that the language is such where, as you read it, Jonah actually died in the belly of that fish, and God resurrected him as he vomited him up onto the shore there, and he walked to Nineveh. Whether he did or not, we don't really know, but it does seem consistent with the analogy Jesus gave. As Jesus was dead and buried in the tomb, Jonah was dead and buried in the fish. And as Jesus was brought forth out of the tomb, resurrected, so Jonah uh, on the shores that led then to Nineveh. But Jesus said to them, the only sign that I'm going to give you, and the word sign is a Greek word that means more than a miracle. We have a word, obviously, that means miracle. But the word for sign here. It's more than a miracle. It means a wonder or some supernatural occurrence or miracle by which one may recognize a person or confirm who he is. So when you see the word sign there, it does speak of something supernatural, but in the sense of confirming or authenticating somebody or someone's ministry. See, they, wanted, they knew he, was super, that he did supernatural things. That wasn't the issue for them, as we're going to see in a moment. The issue was... Are your supernatural things from God or are they from the devil? That's where they were coming from. They couldn't dispute. He did miracles. And it wasn't just another miracle they were looking for because he had done so many of those already. It was a special sign that would authenticate or confirm who he really was. See, that's what they were looking for. But Jesus said, look, I'm going to give you no more sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Or in other words, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of the resurrection. Now, in Luke chapter 16, remember how that Jesus told a story, not a parable. This was a, tr a real story. When Jesus told a parable, he never gave any names because it was a, a fictitious story that was designed to teach a spiritual truth. Here in Luke chapter 16, he tells a story about a man named Lazarus, who was a diseased beggar, and another guy who was a rich man, who we don't get his name. But this was obviously a real story that Jesus was sharing with them from the life of a real man named Lazarus. But he said there once was a rich man who ate sumptuously. He lived in the lap of luxury. And then there was a diseased beggar named Lazarus who we don't, you know, it doesn't say directly, but we definitely infer from the story he was a believer. But he was a diseased beggar. He was poor. And he was brought every day and laid at the door of the rich man's house and just desired to eat some of the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. But the rich man, of course, was oblivious to him, didn't show him any kind of kindness. And in the course of time, Lazarus died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, which, as we have said before, bef there is somewhere in the center of the earth a place called Hades. That's the Greek term. The Hebrew term is Sheol, both being the grave. And this is a holding compartment for, at one time, unbelievers and believers. Before Jesus Christ died on the cross, he had not paid for the sins of humanity. So when people who died believing in Messiah, when he was that he was going to come and all of that, they didn't go to they didn't go into hell in the sense that they went into the flames of torment, but they still were a prisoner of death because Jesus had not conquered death yet, and so Hades was divided into two compartments: a place of torment where the unbelievers went, and a place of paradise called Abraham's bosom where believers went when they died. And the two were separated by a gigantic gulf. Now, Lazarus was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And there he was comforted. In the course of time, it says the rich man died and was brought to the torment side of Hades. 
And there he lifted up his eyes and saw Lazarus being comforted by Father Abraham. And he called across this gulf and he said, Father Abraham, please allow Lazarus to come to me and dip his finger in water and touch it to my tongue to cool me because I'm being tormented in these flames. And Abraham says, Son, did you not have the good things in your life and Lazarus the evil? But now he is comforted and you are, tor are tormented. And beside that, there is a great gulf or a chasm between us so that we can't come over to you and neither can you come over to us. And he said, well, then, Father Abraham, please send him back to my family, to my father's house, because I have five brothers and I want him to sh share with them about this place so that they don't ever come here. And notice what Abraham said in verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said to them, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Moses and the prophets was just another way of saying what? If they don't hear the word of God, they're not going to believe a miracle, even if somebody rises from the dead. If somebody is unwilling to believe just based on what God has said no miracle in the world is going to convince them even if someone rises from the dead now it's interesting that as we come to John's gospel Jesus Christ did raise a guy from the dead whose name was Lazarus and I'm not at all implying it was the same Lazarus but it's interesting how the Holy Spirit has Jesus raising a man who is called by the same name Lazarus and you know the story how that he had died and was buried for four days in the tomb and Jesus finally came and he was a brother of two sisters, Mary and Martha, a family that Jesus was quite close to during his earthly ministry. And so they brought Jesus to the tomb and in verse 43, now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And it was important that he said, Lazarus, come forth, because when you're the God of the universe, you better be specific, otherwise you get emptied out every tomb in Jerusalem. So he said, hey, just, just Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound, hand and foot, with grave clothes. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. See, now, this miracle has caused many people to get saved. But obviously there were people that were open to the truth, see? And a miracle will bring people to faith if they're open and sincere to want to know the truth. So it did bring a lot of people to Christ. But verse 47, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. So show us a sign and we'll believe. They admit already he does many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Can you imagine these guys? I mean, think about it. These were the religious leaders of Israel. It's obvious to them Jesus Christ is doing miracles no other man has ever done in the scope of what he is doing. And yet they want to kill him because people are coming to him. And it goes on to say here, verse 9 of chapter 12, Then a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus. Now Lazarus is hanging around Jesus, and people know this guy was once dead, and so they're all coming not only to see Jesus, but they're also coming to see Lazarus. And when they see him, a lot of them are getting saved just because they see Lazarus that had been raised from the dead. Verse 10, But the chief priests took counsel that they might also put Lazarus to death. Poor Lazarus, this guy can't win for anything, man. <laughs> Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Not only did this miracle not bring them to faith, but they were looking for ways to go ahead and kill Lazarus also. Because of him, a lot of people were getting saved. And, uh, you know, again, it's just the old story that, look, if you don't want to believe, man, there's nothing that God can do or will do that is going to force you to believe. And the thing about it is, if you read the Gospels, Jesus Christ never worked miracles to satisfy anybody's curiosity. He never did parlor tricks to entertain people. Uh, remember how that, when Pilate was judging, or Jesus was standing before Pilate, 
And Pilate heard that he was from Herod's jurisdiction. He sent him to Herod. You know, get this thing off my desk. This is Herod's problem. Send him up there with Herod. Now, Herod was happy when he heard Jesus was, you know, waiting outside because he had heard of the miracles that Jesus did and was hoping that Jesus would do a little miracle for him. But not only did Jesus not do a miracle for Herod, he didn't even answer it because he knew Herod's heart was not right. His heart was not seeking the truth at all. He just wanted Jesus to perform some miracle to entertain him. And Jesus Christ did not perform miracles to entertain people. They always had a purpose. There was always a purpose attached to the miracles he did. And it's very important that we understand that. Jesus Christ worked miracles to confirm or to authenticate his ministry, but he was under no misconception that these miracles by themselves were going to bring anybody to, the, to saving faith that did not want to believe. And I think there is a danger, and I know there's a danger, with being preoccupied with signs and wonders. There are some in the church that are absolutely preoccupied with miracles. And, you know, as if that's everything. That's it. That's, man, that's, we can just, just do miracle after miracle. That's all we would need. No, that's not all we would need. The Bible doesn't ever say miracles bring people to salvation. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It's always the Word of God that brings people to salvation. Maybe a miracle accompanies it. The danger, though, is Satan knows how we have a kind of a, um, well, a bent towards the supernatural. People are fascinated with the supernatural. And today especially, and I'm talking about all people, not just Christians now, are fascinated with the supernatural. The only problem is if you're not a Christian and you don't have a spiritual guidebook to go by that tells you what is of God and what is not of God in the spirit realm, you're wide open to all kinds of deception. Because don't think for one second Satan will not stoop down to work miracles to deceive people because the Bible talks about lying signs and wonders which Satan will perform and the Antichrist will perform to deceive many people. You see, we are at a great disadvantage because we are physical beings locked in a three-dimensional universe in the constraints of time and that's we're limited to this dimension we're limited to the physical, but there's more to reality that we know than that what meets the physical eye. Behind the physical realm, there is the spirit realm. And they can see us, and they can interact with each other and with us, although we can't see them. And in the spirit realm, our human physical senses will not allow us to see what's really going on. We can't see what demons are pulling certain strings or manipulating us in certain directions to deceive us. We wouldn't know what is from God and what was not from God if God himself had not come from the spirit realm, invaded the natural world with a message system which would tell us what is of God and what is not of God. And back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and this is a very well-known passage that we've talked about before, but listen to what God speaking through Moses said, verse 20, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And so the Bible gives us some criteria, some guidelines. If anyone comes claiming to speak on behalf of God, but prophesies anything to you that does not come to pass, they're not of God. So that's how we can know, first of all, if a man or a woman is speaking on behalf of God or they're not, if they claim to be a prophet. But also in Deuteronomy 13, kind of interesting here, in verse 1, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder. Here we go. Here's a guy who stands up and works legitimate miracles, okay? If somebody comes along, God said, and he works legitimate miracles, and the sign of the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is what? 
He's testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The idea here is that there will come those who have supernatural abilities. Uh, we never are to build our lives on supernatural phenomenon, always in the Word of God, because Satan can reproduce miracles. Satan has got powers. He can deceive people with lying signs and wonders. But the Word of God, is we, we know, is from God. And if we build our life on the Word of God, well, then we'll never be deceived. See? But if you only open yourself up to the supernatural, and a lot of people today are very, very preoccupied and very interested in the supernatural, and because they're not believers in the Lord and don't have His Word as the guidelines for what is of God and what is not of God, they're getting sucked into a lot of things that are not of God and are being led down a lot of paths that are going to lead right to hell. Unless they wake up and realize they're being manipulated by what the Bible calls an angel of light, Lucifer, who can do things miracles and all to deceive and that's exactly what's happening today and we know the antichrist jesus said in matthew 24 and we won't really have time to read it but jesus said that well let's just read a couple verses matthew 24 23 jesus warned us he said if then if anyone says to you this is during the tribulation period which i believe we're not going to be here to see but if anyone says to you look here is the christ or there do not believe it for false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And Jesus says, See, I have warned you beforehand. A lot of people are going to be deceived during the tribulation period because Satan is going to be working very powerfully on the earth, primarily through the Antichrist and the false prophet, who are going to have miraculous abilities. But as Paul the Apostle said in 2 Thessalonians chapter chapter 2 he said this antichrist which he called this lawless one the coming verse 9 of the lawless one is according to the working of satan this guy is going to be satan's kid satan's man with all power signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved you see they rejected the word of god the gospel and they embraced these signs and wonders that actually had come to them from the enemy. And they were deceived. Why? Because God wanted them to be deceived? No. Because they rejected the love of the truth that they might be saved. When a person rejects the truth and turns their back on God, then they are open to all kinds of deception. If God shows you the light and you turn your back on it, then you will walk in darkness and you will grope around and you will be deceived. That's all there is to it. Professing to be wise, Paul said they became fools when they changed the glory of God for the incorruptible you know, image of man and so on. And a lot of people have rejected the love of the truth and have turned their back on the truth and now they're groping around in darkness. Jesus is saying, look man, even if somebody is raised from the dead, it's not going to force people to believe who do not want to believe. But turning back here for a moment to Matthew chapter 16, which is the parallel passage, Jesus says something, I think, very interesting. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him, asked him that he would show them a sign from, from heaven. Now, why from heaven? Well, because in Jesus' day, the rabbis taught that demons could work miracles on the earth, but only God could work miracles in the heavens or in the sky. And so by coming to Jesus and saying, look, show us a sign from heaven, they were saying basically, look, we know that you have healed the sick and we know that you have uh, caused blind people to see and cleansed lepers and fed thousands with just small amounts of food. We know all that, but a demon can do that. We want to see some kind of a sign in the heavens, in the sky, that would confirm to us that you really are who you're saying you are. And maybe they were looking for something like Elijah did what he called fire down from heaven. Or they were looking like for something like maybe that happened in Joshua's day when the sun stood still for a, the space of a whole day. Or possibly something out of the prophecy of Joel which said that uh, in the day of the Lord the moon would be turned to blood. Maybe they wanted uh, you know, the sun darkened and the moon turned to blood. Or something that would give to them some kind of a, a confirmation that Jesus was really who he said he was. 
So they said, look, we want something in the sky to confirm what you're saying. And Jesus kind of picked up on that and said, well, you know, speaking of the sky, to paraphrase it, verse 2, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be fall weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you can you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. And Jesus was basically picking up on, and, and you've heard the old the sailor saying, red sky at night is a sailor's delight, red sky in the morning, a sailor take warning. Uh, they believed that at night, if the sun, sky was red at the time of the sunset, it meant that it was going to be a nice day tomorrow. Or in the morning, if when the sun was rising, the sky became very red, they believed it meant a storm was coming. Now, whether or not that's true, uh, I, I don't know if it is or not. And I don't believe Jesus is, is saying it's true. He is just basically saying, though, the Pharisees believed it. And they could look up at the sky and see the signs in the sky and interpret them in such a way as to predict the weather. But Jesus is saying, how is it you can do that? But you can't look at the signs of the times and interpret them in such a way as to predict my coming. And of course, he's referring back to Daniel chapter 9, when God sent an angel, angel to Daniel and said, look, from the time the commandment goes forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, start counting, because from that very day, 483 years is going to pass before the Messiah, the king, comes riding into Jerusalem. And we all know the story how that on March 14th, 445 B.C., King Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah the commandment to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And back then, of course, they were using a 30-day month calendar, 360-day year. If you were to add the 483 years, which is 173,880 days, to March 14th, 445 B.C., it brings you out to April 6, 32 A.D., Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem claiming to be king. Now, they had that specific prophecy. And Jesus nailed these guys many times. One time he said, you know, you guys search the scriptures daily, for in them you think you have eternal life, but it's they that testify of me. And yet you refuse to come to me that I might give you this life. So here was a group of religious men who spent all day in the Word of God and yet were blind to its truths. Well, you say, well, how could that be? Because their hearts weren't right. You can go to the Word of God with the wrong heart and wanting to prove out of it or read into it whatever you want and come away believing in a lie because you've deceived yourself. Just because people spend time in the Bible and can quote scriptures to you doesn't mean they're necessarily right on. Jesus said, the blind leadeth the blind. Both will fall into a ditch. He said, you guys can look at the sky and see the signs of the weather and interpret what kind of, interpret those in such a way as to predict the weather for the next day, and yet you can't see the signs of my coming. In the Old Testament, there were 333 prophecies that pointed towards the first coming. 333 prophecies of Jesus' first coming. Everywhere from where he would be born how he would live, how he would be betrayed, how he would die, and so on and so forth in great detail and specificity. And yet these guys reading these things over and over again because of their own polluted, unbelieving hearts missed it. And Jesus nailed them. He says, you want a sign, a sign from heaven? Don't you realize I am the sign from heaven? You guys want a sign from heaven? I am it. I mean, how much more clear could it be? Peter said, look, we saw miracle after miracle. We were with him on the holy mount of transfiguration when we saw him radiate like the sun. But don't take our word for it. We've got the more sure word of prophecy. If there's anything that confirms the word of God, it is prophecy. That's why God filled his word with prophecy. Because he said, only I know the end from the beginning. Only I can predict the future and be right every single time. Because I'm not guessing, gang. I know what's going to happen. And if anyone comes in my name claiming to represent me or speak from me, and they tell you things that don't come to pass, they're false prophets. Write them off. Send them away. Don't be afraid of them because they don't speak on behalf of me. And so Jesus Christ was saying, look, you guys can't even discern the signs of the times. Now listen to me. I'm sad that so much of the church of Jesus Christ today seems to kind of follow along in the footsteps of the Pharisees and scribes in this point. 
You know, a lot of the church of Jesus Christ in our day is completely blinded to the signs of the times. You know that there's people that talk about, you know, that say they're Christians, and I don't doubt that they aren't, but that claim to be Christians, and, and yet they are totally blind to the times in which we're living. In fact, if you ask them, well, when do you think Jesus is going to come back? Oh, I don't know, maybe a thousand, couple thousand years. A couple of thousand years, I, I tell you what, I can't tell you the day or the hour. I can't tell you the month. I can't tell you the year, but I know one thing for sure. As we look at the signs and all the prophecies, because you know what? There were 333 prophecies in the Old Testament with regard to his first coming. There's over 500 with regard to his second coming. And I know one thing for sure, that the rapture is going to precede the second coming of Christ by at least seven years. And as I've said before, maybe you've experienced this this last Christmas. Well, actually, it wasn't Christmas. It was about October, actually. Long before Thanksgiving, Christmas decorations were up in the department stores. I went to Penny's to get something. It was like middle of October. I saw Christmas trees up already. Okay, Now, I know that Thanksgiving precedes Christmas. And if I walk through the department store and Thanksgiving hasn't come yet, and I'm seeing all the signs of Christmas around, I know Thanksgiving has got to be all that closer, right? Well, the same is true with the rapture and the second coming. The Bible doesn't give us anything that has to happen before the rapture of the church because the rapture of the church is, is imminent, which means it could happen at any time. But the Lord has given us a lot of signs, a lot of prophecies that point to the second coming. And as, as I see the signs of the second coming, I know that the rapture is all the more near than that. And you say, what are the signs of the times? Everywhere you look, you see them. You can't pick up a paper without reading about fulfilled prophecy. We know that the Antichrist is going to... Well, first of all, we know that, that the Antichrist is going to take power over the world and over the last world governing empire, which the Bible talks about being a confederation of ten nations. And we've often for a long time believed that they were the ten nations in Western Europe, which they still could be. But now there's some evidence to maybe it looks like possibly that uh, they have divided up the earth into ten regions. And that could be really in all actuality what the Bible was referring to, not just the ten nations in Western Europe, but it could be that we're seeing, we're going to see the, the whole earth divided up into ten global economic or whatever regions which the Antichrist when he rises to power will then be over. But we know it's going to be something on that line. And we see that if it is Western Europe, that's been in place now for since 1981, I think. And uh, not that they've been officially joined together, but they were talking about it. Uh, I think the borders came down or, recently, uh, over the last couple of years, and there's free access now without passports. Uh, the United States of Europe has been born. They have their own Euro uh, money, uh, Euro cards, Euro police force. They're, you know, uh, it's a lot of things going on there. Uh, we also know the Bible talks about the Antichrist issuing everybody a number on their right hand or in their forehead, without which they can't buy or sell. And with, and with he's going to be able to keep tabs on everybody on the face of the, of the earth that accepts this number. For a long time, obviously, uh, Bible students were like, well, what does that mean? I mean, for centuries. And nobody will be able to buy or sell without this number. Well, until the advent of credit cards and credit, uh, that was uh, nobody even fathomed you could buy or sell without money, see, or with just a number. Today, of course, it's so commonplace, we just take it for granted. But do you know that even as we speak uh, in Chicago, and I'm sure other places, they've already begun to, uh, they have a, uh, a chip that they have encased in a little glass capsule, just a little bit bigger than a, a piece of rice. Into this chip has coded all uh, kinds of information. They use it to uh, they have a special uh, gun that kind of plants it into an animal's uh, skin. And the, the uh, anti-cruelty society is using this to mark uh, dogs and everything. So that when people, animals get loose, they have a scanner they can scan across the animal's skin. They're using it right now. The technology is there right now. And on the scanner will show up the owner's name, address, phone number. They're keeping track of animals right now with a system that could easily be adapted for human beings. In fact, I saw with my own eyes a picture of the machine that they've already got right now 
to read people's hands, the technology is there. They're already looking to uh, down the road affix to a person's body a number because they realize that credit cards can be lost. Some people have four and five social security numbers and they're collecting you know, four or five different social security checks. They want to do away with that and issue everybody one number, which is a, a real legitimate thing. I mean, it's, uh, uh, it makes a lot of sense, really. Just because the Antichrist is going to use it doesn't mean it's, a, it's an evil system in and of itself. I mean, a cashless society would cut down on crime dramatically, I think, and a, a lot of other things. It just so happens, though, the Antichrist is going to use this system when he comes to power. But the technology is there right now for them to implant in your hand a computer chip, which they can then just stick your hand in the scanner, and that's how you buy your things and your bill at the end of the month, and there's no cash that passes hands. Uh, it's there right now. The technology is there right today. Also, well, the Bible says the Antichrist will not only be the world political leader, but he'll also have an evil sidekick called the false prophet who's going to be the world religious leader. And as the Antichrist is going to bring the whole world together into a one-world government, the false prophet is going to bring the whole world together, together into a one-world religion. And it's interesting to me how that today we're seeing the true church and the false church beginning to separate so that the true is becoming more obvious and the false is becoming more obvious. And when I say that, I'm talking about true believers in every denomination, whether it be Catholic, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, whatever. In every denomination, Christian denomination, there are true believers and then you have false believers, people that are not really saved. Here at Calvary Chapel on Sunday morning, I'm convinced, we have any one of a number of people that have been coming to our church for, what, several weeks or even maybe several months but have not really made a commitment to Jesus Christ yet. So here, here in our own church, there is the true and the false, right? And we're seeing more and more of the true coming out and finding more koinonia and unity with each other and putting less and less emphasis on denominational barriers as we move closer to the return of Christ. It's interesting how that true Christians in every denomination are finding it easier to come together and to put away doctrinal differences to fellowship in the unity of Christ. And you're finding more and more the false churches beginning to come together in an ecumenical movement. Maybe you caught on Nightline last week how that the Presbyterian church, which has three liberal branches to it and one very conservative branch that we would have no problems fellowshipping with at all, but three branches of the Presbyterian church are very liberal. And one of these three branches organized a big women's conference of Presbyterian women. And they came together for this conference, and it was absolutely incredible what went on. They got into goddess worship. They said that God is really a, a woman. They called her Sophia, which is the Greek word for wisdom. They were worshiping this goddess, but she wasn't just even out of the Bible. She was a goddess force that filled everything. They were encouraged to go out and to hug the trees outside because the goddess Sophia, her life force, flowed through the trees and the rocks. And this is all biblical, they said, because the Bible talks about God being a rock and this. So the rocks are God and that's pantheism. That's, that's Hinduism. That's the new age lie that the God force fills all of us. And we're all really gods, see? But a lot of women in the Presbyterian church that were evangelical and conservative like us were absolutely appalled and, uh, and a lot of the Presbyterian churches that are right on pulled their support from the denom denomination and there's a real shakeup going on. But on Nightline they had one of the women who was the keynote speaker, very liberal theologian. But she said that, she talked about the global church, how that we're coming together in a global church. I thought, isn't that interesting? That's exactly what the world is being set up to accept. And yet we as Christians will never stand for a global church that embraces all kinds of false doctrines and heresies. You say, well, man, I'm glad I don't belong to that deal. Well, that's something. That's Sophia. That, that's off the wall. Yes, it is. But I also have here from Dave Hunt's ministry, and if you've never heard of Dave Hunt, I'll turn you on to some of his books. They're excellent. He starts off his, uh, his periodical. It's called The Berean Call. He says, the most significant event in almost 500 years of church history took place March 29, 1994. 
leading evangelicals and Catholics signed a joint declaration which is called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, the Christian Mission in the Third Millennium. Hunt goes on to say the document overturns the Reformation and does incalculable damage to the cause of Christ. And what he goes on to say, and the sad thing about this whole thing is, a lot of evangelicals that we have heard of and respect, men like Chuck Colson, men like Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ, have gone ahead and signed on to this thing. And Hunt says, I don't, I don't question their sincerity, I don't challenge their Christianity, but I definitely challenge their wisdom. He said, we know in the Catholic Church there are believers, but this document doesn't just say that. It says that all Catholics are Christians. And we, as the Protestant Church's believers, evangelicals, must stop around the world proselytizing Catholics out of the church and into evangelicalism. And Hunt went on to say, look, we Protestants don't believe that every Protestant's a Christian. Why should we say that every Catholic, just by virtue of the fact that our Catholics are Christians? We celebrate Christians in every Christian denomination, but to say every Baptist or every Presbyterian or every Catholic is a Christian is ridiculous. And Hunt went on to enumerate some of the Catholic, and I was raised a Catholic, and some of the things that he talks about and gives, uh, gives a proof for, I didn't even realize the Catholic Church taught, uh, because I really didn't ever study Catholic doctrine and theology. Most, peop most Catholics don't. We just kind of believe what the church teaches, and, and, and a lot of it doesn't get into real deep things. Uh, but it's amazing what the Catholic Church really believes. And they believe basically that Jesus Christ did not atone for our sins. He just supplied the means by which we can then have salvation through our good works. He supplied the principles. He supplied the tools. And now we have to apply them in such a way as that we earn our salvation more and more through the way we live, going to Mass, and so on. It's all heresy. And Hunt went on to say, I have talked to missionaries in Spain and Latin America. He said, if you think Catholics down in these countries are Christians, you should go down there. And I know that for a fact because I've talked to pastors that, from Calvary chapels down there who said, I challenge you to go into the Philippines or into Latin America and check out the Catholic Church. It is nothing but spiritism. That's all it is. And all these missionaries, Hunt said, I've never met one missionary who's ever told me he has ever run into any Catholic in these countries that was truly born again, that truly knew the way to salvation. But he says, I have seen thousands of Catholics converted to Christ who are so thankful that somebody came to them and told them the truth because the Catholic Church wasn't teaching them the truth. And this is not just a pick on the Catholics now. A lot of the Protestant denominations, liberal denominations, are not teaching the truth either. But the point I'm trying to make is, if we are to sign on to some document that says in the name of unity, let's stop speaking the truth. Let's just assume all Catholics are Christians and let's not tell them the truth because we don't want to proselytize. So we're going to let these people go to hell. Why? In some mistaken name of unity in the church? That's ridiculous. And I am shocked and I am very very saddened to hear men like Bill Bright, Chuck Colson, men who I respect. And I'm not questioning their intentions. They're obviously very sincere. I definitely question the wisdom, though, of signing on to a document that basically ties our hands from preaching the gospel to people that are in a church but obviously do not know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And I would have the same feelings if, if we signed a piece of paper saying we're never going to talk to anybody in any Christian church ever again about the truth because we're going to assume everyone's Christian because we don't want to steal any sheep. Hey, I'm not into stealing sheep from different churches, but I'm into converting people who are in churches who are not saved. And Jesus Christ came into the world at a time when Jerusalem, uh, the temple was rebuilt and in its glory again. Uh, people were very religious, involved in Judaism, but they were lost. See, uh, the Catholic Church just came out with a statement just uh, just a few weeks ago that they believe Muslims are also saved because we all worship the same God. And so here we go. It's like you know what? 
more and more people are being drawn together in this ecumenical oneness which sacrifices truth for the sake of unity. You know what, gang? Unity is wonderful. Unity is important, but never ever at the sake of truth. We are one as we stand on the truth of the Word of God. And if we don't stand on the truth, we might be one, but we're awful wrong. And so, you know, and there's so many things that are pointing to the, to the end that Jesus Christ is coming soon. The ecumenical movement, the one world religion, is, is you know, the one world church is looming on the horizon. We can see it already beginning to take form. The one world government, as the world is being set up uh, to receive the Antichrist. We see things going on in Israel that tell us that tensions are getting higher and higher. And that, of course, that's going to be the firing point that's going to trigger the final events that are going to bring the Antichrist to power and then ultimately Jesus Christ back to the earth. So we are living in perilous, as Paul said, but exciting times. It's going to get worse before it gets better, believe me. And only those Christians that are really strong and grounded on the Word of God are going to be able to stand against what's coming. Those Christians who think that God exists to give them some kind of free ride and that God is some kind of a supernatural Monty Hall that only exists to pass out the goodies behind door number one and two or whatever are going to be in for a big surprise because I'll tell you what, the times are going to get very, very tough. The church is going to get persecuted like never before. And only those who are really committed to Christ are going to be able to stand. And maybe it's going to weed out a lot of uncommitted. I'm, I'm sure it will. Now more than ever, we need to really see the signs of the times. And Jesus said, when you begin to see these things come to pass, look up, for your redemption is drawing near. It's time to look up, and it's time to get serious about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that your children are not in darkness, that that day should overtake us as a thief. For you have made clear, Lord, through your word, the various things that were going to happen, and we're seeing them happen, Lord. And we see the signs of the times, and we interpret them to, to allow us to predict that Jesus' coming is very near. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful servants, that when you come, you will find us doing and not sleeping. And we just pray, Lord, you'll help us to be people of prayer, because only prayer, Lord, and the power of our God is going to bring revival to this, well, to our country, is going to bring people into the kingdom. And Father, I just pray that these men, that we respect men like Chuck Colson and Bill Bright and other evangelicals who may have good intentions, Lord, that they will rethink this. Because it basically says the Reformation was a big mistake. And every one of those reformers who died at the stake and were burned alive for their faith, because sola biblica, only the Bible, that's what they lived for, that's what they died for. Now they were, were saying it was all a mistake. They died in vain. The Catholic Church is just as right on as... Uh, as the evangelical church. Lord, help them to rethink this, that they not give any Catholic the wrong impression that just because they are Catholics, they're necessarily saved. And I pray this prayer for the Protestant churches too, that people who go to church won't just assume because they go to church and believe in you that they're necessarily saved. Satan believes and trembles, but he's not saved, obviously. So, Lord, Help us to keep standing up and speaking the truth in love. Not to attack and to... out of a harsh kind of a uh, voice condemn anyone's church, but to lovingly point them to the truth. And Father, we just pray that we might be used by you in these last days. That we would, you would, Lord, use this church. Pour your Spirit out upon us. And guide us, Lord, and use us, because the days are evil, the time is short, and the harvest is great. Lord, send forth laborers into your harvest, that the work might get done. And use us, we pray. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.